welcome you to Element Church and to uh, our series, Broken Saviors, as we're taking a journey through the book of Judges. Now, as we get started this morning and we continue our journey and our study, um, I want to just stop for a minute and talk a little bit about why we're doing this particular study. Um, if you're new with us, or maybe you haven't been here for all of this series, um, we're taking this journey through Judges, which is a book in the Old Testament. And um, what it does is it highlights uh, sort of the stories of several of the judges who ruled over uh, the nation of Israel. Now, when you hear the word judges, you can't uh, allow what we think of judges to kind of fill in the gaps for what we're talking about. Um, we usually think of the word judge and associate with a court, associate it with a courtroom, uh, with legal proceedings, but uh, a judge is really a deliverer. And so maybe even a better word would be the book of deliverers. Uh, and it's a story about different deliverers who rose up in the nation of Israel to deliver them um, from oppression. And so these judges came to bring freedom, uh, to bring peace, to bring salvation uh, to a group of people who were suffering, who were being oppressed. And one of the reasons that we're going through uh, this study uh, is because we love to walk through books of the Bible here at Element Church. And one of the reasons we do that is because it forces us to talk about some difficult concepts, to talk about difficult stories, things that would be easy to skip around and to avoid um, if we just did topical messages. And so we like to walk through books of the Bible because it forces us to engage with and to talk about difficult topics. Another reason that we're going through the book of Judges um, is because this is such a great segue to Easter. And here's why. There are a few key lessons that we take from the book of Judges. One is we get a real clear picture of the condition of the human heart, that we as humans and people were broken, that we're in need of a savior, a deliverer, that all of us face suffering and oppression in our lives, and we're in need of a savior who can bring freedom and who can bring peace. Another reason we're doing this is because it's a great reminder that there is no human leader who's genuinely going to bring true, lasting freedom and peace and deliverance in our lives. That any human leader is in fact a broken savior. We're in need of a savior who can bring lasting peace, lasting freedom, lasting deliverance in our lives, which is exactly what we'll do when we get to Easter. After this week, we have two more weeks left in the book of Judges, and then we'll turn our attention to preparing for Easter as we prepare to remember and to celebrate Jesus, our great Savior. Now, the story that we're going to look at today is going to actually make it really easy for us to disassociate with the story. As we've been going through Judges, we've seen some unusual things happen. We've seen that there's a pretty big difference in our culture today versus the culture that existed 3,000 years ago when these stories took place. And today's story will be especially like that. Some of the events that are going to take to 
place in today's story with uh, the judge that we're going to look at today um, might lead you to disconnect from the story. To think, what does this have to do at all with my life? Nothing about my life or the culture or society or community that I live in looks anything like this or has anything to do with this. This story today may even lead some of us to be judgmental, to feel morally superior to the individuals in the society and the culture that we read about today. And as we dive deeper, what we're going to find is that there's actually not that much of a difference between us and them. There's a few differences, but at the end of the day, the human heart is still the human heart. And so we're going to begin in Judges chapter 10. And so if you want to follow along with us, um, the verses that we're going to look at and read today are going to be on the screen, but you can also follow along in the Bible app um, by scanning this QR code. And even if you don't have the app on your phone, this will open it up in a web browser, and then you can follow along with us there. And so we're going to begin in Judges chapter 10, starting in verse 6. And here's what it says. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Now, if you have been with us in this series and in this study in Judges for a while, you'll notice that this opening phrase has already been repeated multiple times. That it's sort of a key identifying marker to let us know that we've ended one story about a judge and we are starting a new one. That the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served other gods. This is a part of a pattern. It's a pattern we've already been through four or five times through this book. That the people of Israel forsake the Lord and began serving other gods and worshiping idols. When they do that, God gets angry and no longer protects them from their surrounding enemies. And when God removes his hand of protection, these enemies come and they invade the Israelites' land. They enslave and oppress and fight against these people. The people regret their decisions and they cry out to the Lord. God hears their prayers and so he sends them a judge, a deliverer. This deliverer would bring about freedom and peace and salvation for the people. There would be a season of peace and then the people would go back to their old ways. Their judge, their deliverer, their ruler would die and they would start all over again. They would abandon the Lord, they would start to worship other idols. It's this cycle we've seen over and over and over again. And here we see the cycle continue. So we continue on in the story, verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, as he had already promised them it would be if they turned to idols. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they opposed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And so here's what's interesting. Now Israel, the people, are being oppressed 
They're being oppressed by the very people of whose gods they had turned to worship and to serve. So what we see is for them, their idolatry, turning to worship another, led to enslavement. Now, sometimes when we think about idolatry, we think of ancient pagan practices of actually literally bowing down to some statue or figurine. And there's no doubt that in certain times and in certain cultures that has existed, but that's not really what idolatry is. That's just one form of idolatry. What we see in the Bible is this picture that idolatry is when we turn to something or someone to find what only is available in God. When we turn to something or someone to find joy, to find satisfaction, to find purpose and fulfillment, to find hope and future, to find security and safety. So anyone or anything that we turn to to provide those things for us, those things that only God can truly provide for us, the Bible would call that idolatry. So you and I probably aren't tempted to bow down to a figurine. We are probably not tempted to put up little statues or pictures up on our uh, fireplace mantles. But you and I are no more free from the temptations of idolatry than these people. It just takes a different form today. I want you to notice what uh, Jeremiah says in his book. Jeremiah was a prophet. Um, The role of a prophet was to go to God's people and to speak God's words to them. And Jeremiah is speaking to the same group of people a little later in history because they've committed the same sins again. They have turned to worship other gods. They have forsaken the Lord and now they're suffering because of it. And here's what, through the words of Jeremiah, God says. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So here's what Jeremiah says to the people. Here's what God is saying through Jeremiah to the people. They have forsaken God, they've turned away from God, and they have turned to things that cannot satisfy. Here, God is associated with the fountain of living water. Living water is another way of saying clean, fresh, flowing water. God says, I am the clean, fresh, flowing water made available to you, and you have turned away from me and instead decided to rely on cisterns. Now, for these people, a cistern was something that you would, it was a hole that you would dig in the ground in a dry, desolate, desert-type place so that when it rained, all the rainwater would collect. But cisterns are dirty. They're muddy. They grow stagnant over time. And they don't hold water long-term. So you have to just keep digging. And you have to dig more and more and more. 
and you have to go deeper and deeper and deeper. This is a picture of idolatry. When rather than looking to God to provide what only he can provide, we go to something or someone else. And in the end, it never satisfies. In the end, it doesn't satisfy, so we just have to keep going and going and going, and we become enslaved by the very things we turned to worship. And that's even what God says to his people in Judges. And so when the people were being oppressed, as they always do, it says, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Baals is one of the foreign words, a Canaanite word that just means God's. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? These are all the nations of people that surround them geographically. The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Can you imagine God saying anything worse than this? God essentially tells the people, you you turn from me to worship those other gods. So if you're unhappy, then why don't you go ask them to do something about it? I've already saved you from the Egyptians. I've already saved you from the Amorites and the Ammonites. I've already saved you from the Philistines and all these other people groups around you. And yet every time I save you, you go through a short little period of having peace and then you you go back. So if if you really want those gods... Why don't you ask them to save you? Notice here what the people are doing. The people here are just trying to use God for their own advantage. They don't really care about God until things in life get terrible. And then they're just hoping God will be their rescue plan, their fire insurance. Lord, we've screwed it up, so we need you to fix it. But they don't really have an interest in God. They're just interested in what God can do for them. And so God sees right through their request. But fortunately, the people are able to learn from their mistakes. While the book of Judges has a lot of low points, there are some positives. And so eventually the people get to this point. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now the people have started to have a genuine change of heart. Because notice what they say. 
do to us whatever seems good to you. They get to a place where they recognize that they're coming, they're coming to God not just for what he can do for them, but for him. That they're, that they're ready to acknowledge their mistakes and come to God regardless of whether he fixes the problem or not. Whether he removes the suffering, whether he fixes what they messed up and broke, regardless of what God does, they just recognize they need him. This is a picture of true worship. Earlier, Roselle talked about worship. And he talked about how God is good. We celebrate him because we woke up this morning, because of all his blessings in our life. But then he said, even if we didn't have those blessings or we didn't wake up this morning, God is still good. That's what worship looks like. When you come to God for him, not for what he can do for you. This is the difference between trying to use God and trying to worship God. And then notice what it says here at the end. And God became impatient over the misery of Israel. When we try to use God, he becomes impatient with us. When we come to worship God for who he is, not just what we think he could or should do for us, not just what we want him to do for us. When we come to worship him for him and who he is, God becomes impatient over our suffering. And so like he has done in the past, God will raise up a deliverer, a judge. So the Ammonites march right up to the border of Israel and began threatening to attack Israel. And so we see this new judge appear in chapter 11. It says, now Jephthah, the Gilead, Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out, of, out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and it went out with him. So Jephthah becomes this mighty warrior, this great soldier, this strong arm and enforcer, but his family and his people didn't see him as a legitimate member of their people. He had a troubled past, and so they kicked him out. So Jephthah takes his skills and uses them for his own means. Jephthah gathers these, quote, worthless fellows. It's just kind of a funny way to put it. Jephthah becomes a gang leader. He becomes a mob boss. He becomes a warlord. He takes his his violent skills, and because his people don't want him around anymore, he's going to use them for himself. And then here's what happens next. 
After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, why, did, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? What these people had done, they had treated Jephthah just like they had treated God. We have no need of you until we're in trouble. And once we're in trouble, then we'll come calling. This is exactly how they had treated God. They had no use or interest in God until they were in trouble. Then they needed him to fix the situation. They do the same thing with Jephthah. There's this foreign enemy, this foreign army on their doorsteps. Now they need somebody with some pretty violent skills. Now they need someone who has that warrior, mighty warrior mentality and skill set. Jephthah sees through him. He says, you weren't interested in me before. Now you want me to come and be your leader? You want me to come and save you out of the mess you're in? So Jephthah actually says, fine, I'll do it so long as you will make me your leader when it's all over. And the people agree. They said, fine, you can be our leader. We will follow you. Just save us. So the first thing Jephthah does is he's actually going to send a letter to the Ammonite king saying basically, trying a little diplomacy, like, what's your problem? Like, why are you trying to attack us? We have done nothing to offend you. And the king replies, because you're on my land. So Jephthah just replies back and essentially says, okay, first of all, it's not your land. It was never your land. And he gives the king of the Ammonites a little history lesson. He says, first of all, this land, before we took possession of it, belonged to the Amorites, not the Ammonites. Totally different people group. And he said, do you remember when our people first showed up here? We actually didn't want to stay here. We were just trying to pass through. And we wrote you a letter and said, can we pass through your land? And you told us no. So we followed your orders and we went around your land. And then we came to the Amorites land, the, the land that's being disputed now. And we wrote a letter to that king and said, can we pass through? But instead of telling us no, he attacked us. Well, we defeated him. So after we defeated him, we kept the land. So it was never yours to begin with. And we kind of earned this land. They attacked us and we defeated them. And then he kind of ends essentially with this suggestion of, but if you really think it's yours, then come and get it. And that's what the Ammonites do. They come and attack. And here's what Jephthah does next. This is where the story will take a dark twist. This is the point where it'll be easy to start thinking that we are morally superior to these people and how this story doesn't have anything to do with our lives. But in a moment, I'll show you that's not true. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, 
If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. I will give a sacrifice of whatever comes out my door when I come home. And so Jephthah fights because he's a mighty warrior because he's particularly skilled at gathering, quote, worthless fellows to fight alongside himself, he wins. And here's what happens. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, alas, My daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Uh, The story will continue to detail more about what happens, but um, maybe we would cover those details if if our elementary room had opened this week, but I think for this week, I'll let you assume and you can use your imagination to imagine what happens next. Now, here's what we're going to see in a minute. Is that Jephthah has been wrong about his understanding of God from the very beginning. Some people have heard this story before, read this story and thought, well, perhaps Jephthah was thinking he was going to to do an animal sacrifice. That's what he meant. He didn't know it was going to, to be his daughter, but actually it's not true. Because if you go back to his original vow, in Hebrew, which is what this was originally written in, whatever can also be translated whoever. It can also be translated he. And this word that Whoever comes from the doors of my house to meet me or greet me, in Hebrew makes it very clear that what Jephthah expected was for one of his servants to come out of his house. Jephthah knew a human being would be coming out. So why would Jephthah ever make this vow? Why would he ever make it? Well, two reasons. One uh, is because Jephthah had been completely desensitized to violence. Um, He lived in a very brutal time frame within history in a very brutal culture. War was a part of life for them. When another nation stepped out of bounds or did something they weren't supposed to, there weren't economic sanctions that you could impose on another nation. One, because Jephthah was a violent person. I mean, he was a gang leader, essentially. Violence was a part of his life. And number three, he had been rewarded for his violence. The people offered to make him the leader of the nation because of how good he was at violence. So for him... Death and violence were nothing unusual. 
But before you judge too quickly Jephthah and his culture, uh, we're not that much different. Here's the different. We just, we just have different idols. But the extremes to which we will take our, the things that we celebrate and we worship in our culture are not that much different. You see, in our culture, a woman can decide that she is no longer happy in life. She's no longer fulfilled and satisfied. And so she can run after and chase after whatever relationship, whatever fantasy seems as though it will satisfy. And as a society, we will celebrate her being true to herself with no regard for her family who are destroyed by her decisions. Because in our society, we have confused true love with self-love. See, in our society, a man can forsake everything that's important in his life to pursue success. It doesn't matter what it costs. It doesn't matter how many hours it takes. It doesn't matter who in his life is abandoned and forgotten as long as he reaches the top in his goal. And when he does, we'll put his face on the cover of a magazine. He'll get a blue check mark next to his Twitter profile. We will celebrate his success and we will ask him for advice on how to vote in the next election and could not care any less who was hurt, who was abandoned, who was destroyed, who was trampled upon, and who was abused for him to get to the top. A couple can get pregnant in our society today and because it's not convenient timing, because it will, that, that baby will get in the way of what they want to accomplish, because it will be a burden on their finances or their corporate ladder pursuits, they can just get rid of the inconvenience. And as a society, we will celebrate their bravery and their advancement at the sake of murdering a child. See, in our society, we will celebrate and honor the sacrifice of others to accomplish a task. It just looks a little different. We're actually not that much morally superior than these people. Our methods of getting there are just a little different today. but we will celebrate personal independence and freedom and it doesn't matter who has to be sacrificed to attain it. The other reason Jephthah made this promise, this vow, was because he had allowed his worship of the Lord to be confused and conformed to what the world said was appropriate. 
human sacrifice was how these other cultures would worship their gods. But Jephthah's God, the God of Israel, had outright forbid it in multiple places. God outright forbid human sacrifice to ever be done. Jephthah should have never made the vow and he should have never kept it. But he allowed what the world said was right and appropriate. He allowed the world to define how he should worship rather than allowing the God he came to worship to define it. And we'll close out this story. Judges 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. So Ephraim, the Ephraimites were a tribe of Israel. So Israel was broken up into different tribes, just different subgroups of people. They lived in different parts of the country. They looked mostly the same, but they also had different accents. Not much different than the United States. We have different groups of people who live around the country. We're different, but we're all united as citizens of the U.S., as Americans. So these Ephraimites, who are Israelites, they come to Jephthah and they're angry. And what are they angry about? Are they angry over the atrocity of what Jephthah did? Over the wickedness and evilness of his actions? Nope. They're mad because they didn't get a share in the glory. They're mad because Jephthah now has all this power and influence and glory from his victory in war, and he didn't invite them along. He's not sharing. And this just gives us a picture of the darkness of this season of history. That they don't actually even care what Jephthah did. They don't care about the atrocity. They don't care about the sacrifice. They just care because he's not sharing the power. He's not sharing the glory. Sounds a lot like our culture too. As a society, we don't really care what someone has to sacrifice to get to the top. But then when we get there, we're just mad because they don't share it with the rest of us. That's what we're angry about. That the wealth, that the power, that the influence isn't shared more equally. Not angry because of what was sacrificed along the way. So here are some takeaways for us today. Um, I guess I should close out this story before I get there. So the Ephraimites are angry. They threaten Jephthah. Now Jephthah had tried diplomacy the last time with the Ammonite king. It didn't work. He didn't even bother with it this time. Despite the fact that these are not enemies, these are his own people. He sets a trap. See, the Ephraimites, even though they are part of Israel, they have a different accent. 
And there are certain things they can't pronounce correctly. So Jephthah and his gang members set up shop along the river. And anytime someone wants to cross the river from the Ephraimite side to the rest of the nation, they ask for a password. The password is Shibboleth. But the Ephraimites have a different accent and they can't pronounce it correctly. So they say Sibboleth. So when they ask for the password and the Ephraimites say it incorrectly, they kill him. And Jephthah and his gang members killed 42,000 people. His own people. This is why we need a real savior. This is why no human leader can ever be a true savior. There will always be a broken savior. This is why we need real deliverance because the human heart is wicked. We think we're different and better We just go about it differently today. So here's some lessons, some reflections as we close. Number one, we do not manipulate God through sacrifices. Our God is not asking for sacrifices. It's not how we worship. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. What God asks for is a broken heart over our own wickedness. Not to manipulate him with some sacrifice so he'll get off our back. God is not a schoolyard bully who's just after your lunch money as though you can just give him something and he'll lay off of you. God is not looking for a sacrifice. Our God looks for a broken heart, one that recognizes our sin and repents from it. Number two, we are saved through faith, not works. Our salvation doesn't come because of what we do or that we would earn it, but that God freely gives it because of faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. None of us earn our deliverance or our salvation. Freedom and peace and salvation do not come from our efforts. They come from the work that Jesus did on our behalf, that we believe in and accept through faith in him. Here's the last point. The only sacrifice God really wants is you. Here's what Paul has to say to his church in the first century. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God's asking for your surrender. Would you give up? Would you die to your own desires and wishes, to your own plans and your own control? Would you give it up to him? Would you become the sacrifice? Would you offer yourself to God? 
say, Lord, I'll hand over the control of my life to you. I'll trust you. I'll follow you. And it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world. Jephthah had allowed the world to determine for him how he should worship. And it led him to a very dark place. Rather than allowing our culture and our world to define how we're supposed to worship God, we allow God to define that. And what he's asking from us is surrender and a broken heart. To recognize our sinfulness and to give our lives over to him. Because what we need is a real savior, a true savior. These broken saviors and judges, they were military leaders who shed the blood of others, but our savior shed his own blood for us. He brings lasting freedom and peace and salvation. And what he asks of us is a broken heart over our sin and our wickedness and a full surrender to him of our own lives. Let's pray. Lord, I know that for many of us, sometimes these stories, um, particularly in the Old Testament, are surprising and often strange and foreign to what we're used to in our culture today. And no doubt things are much different today. But Lord, we're, we're not any more superior. Our hearts are just as evil and wicked. We just go about it in different ways. Lord, this world teaches us to sacrifice whatever we have to to get what we want. Lord, we know that you ask us to sacrifice ourselves for what you want. That we would give up the control of our lives to follow you, to trust in you, to accept that salvation comes from you, not from us. So Lord, in this moment, would you help us to worship, to offer true worship, to give you all of ourselves, to come to you not for what you can do for us, but for who you are. God, that this morning we come to you, not to use you, but to worship you. That you might do a work in our lives and our hearts. Lord, would you continue to move and to speak? Would you give us the courage and the boldness just to be willing to be honest with ourselves and with you and to worship you?